Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Podcast. Watch us live every Sunday morning at 9.30 or 11.05 a.m. at GoSBLive.com or visit us in person. You can find directions at GoStonebridge.com. Connect with us on our social media at Facebook.com slash GoStonebridge and our Instagram at SBChurch. All right, is like I said, we started this because I like this kind of topic. I, I like to take a look at uh, who we are and, and as a culture and to say, how did we get there so that we can identify, you know, sort of the foundations of that. And if you weren't here last week when we started, last week we actually talked about freedom because the Christian understanding of freedom that, the, that you know, the disciples learned from Jesus and have passed on is not the same idea as the secular understanding of, of freedom. And a lot of people in, in our culture have that secular understanding that freedom means I can do just whatever I want to do. That's not how they saw it. That's not what he taught. He taught you're now free to do things that you should do, free to do things that can make the world a better place. But it was never the idea that I just get to do whatever I want to do. A lot of those things that you will do will cost you. And a lot of those things will, you know, um, inhibit you in some way or or restrict you in some way. And that's the wonderful thing about uh, being a person made in God's image is that you can do those things and you can make an impact on the culture around you. Remember last week we, we pulled the verse out of John's gospel also where, where Jesus said to, he says that he said to, to those who were believing in him, it didn't mean they were his followers yet, um, that if you follow me and you continue in my teaching, he said, you will know the truth and the truth will do what? Yeah, it'll set you free because sometimes the truth is not as obvious as, as we think it is and sometimes it's so much more powerful than, the, than we think um, that, it will, uh, that it will be. I, I like to tell, you know, the, the story when I met my wife and I fall in love and, you know, I'm learning about love because I'd been a believer, you know, I've been raised in a church, but really been a believer since uh, my high school junior year. And uh, so learning a whole lot, didn't, hadn't figured everything out yet, but learning a whole lot and, and trying to grow. But here's what I realized and what I wanted to do when I met her, I wanted to give up a part of who I was for her. And is that a part of love? Is that a part of something that's good about freedom? Yes, I was, I was free uh, to be able to do that. For, for instance, before I would just go do what I wanted to do. Like if I, you know, all of a sudden the guys called and said, hey, let's go play basketball, grab my bag, I'm out the door. Now all of a sudden, as I'm going out the door, I notice there's someone standing over by the door, right? When we're married, I'm like, oh, that's right. And is it a sacrifice? Of course it's a sacrifice to give this up, but, but it's worth it because you, you, you recognize when you do it, you're actually giving, giving up a, a part of your, what you might call your freedom for something that is better than if you just could do and go and do, you know, whatever you want to do. I like to, to, uh, participate in, in weddings. When uh, I was young, I, I did a wedding and, um, you know, there's these phrases that you say in weddings, traditional vows, you say something like, uh, for better or yeah, uh-oh. For richer or in sickness and in, oh yeah, man, that, you know. And so I'm doing this wedding and uh, I, the, the people at the wedding knew the couple a lot better than I do. I'd only known them about a year and especially the bride. And at one point I, I have her repeating after me and I, I come to the part in, you know, uh, in sickness and in health, um, uh, it, for richer, for, and she gets to where she's repeating that part and she chokes. 
And the whole place just erupted. I mean, really erupted. They're all laughing, almost falling down. She can't say the words and, uh, because they knew her. And, and uh, as I learned later, somebody said, oh, yeah, she's, her whole life she'd said, I will never marry anyone who's not rich. I mean, that was just, you know, one of her criteria. And I understand, you know, and she did. The guy that she married was, uh, you know, was uh, fairly wealthy and was only gaining more wealth. And as far as I know, they are still uh, married and still together. But, you know, there's this, there's this giving up that you, that you do in order to, to, to make it, it, it better. Now, it moves into this, this, this next part of who we are, and that is the idea of, of our self, our identity. You know, and, and there's this, this crisis that we face a lot of times in life of, man, I, I don't know who I am. I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out who I am. And there's this search for yourself that you're going through. Here, here's the problem with uh, searching for yourself as far as our culture is concerned. That when you're young, you don't know who you are. Of course you don't. You're not old enough to know who you are except for where you came from, right? You know who your parents are. Uh, you know who your, what your community is. You know of the values that you were taught. That's by design. It, it's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to work that way because we know from science, you know, that our, our brains and our thinking doesn't develop until later. Um, I heard, you know, you hear the, the numbers 25, 26. I just heard a new number now. They've decided that that may be true for girls, but boys don't fully develop till they're like 32. I don't know if that's true, you know. My wife would say, yes, there's no doubt, you know, that you, your thinking hasn't fully developed. And so you're in a system, and, and this is the way it's always supposed to be, where you're, you're learning who you are from other people that, that you got life from, you know, parents and family and community, and you're learning who you are because, let's face it, a five-year-old may feel like they're somebody, but by the time they get to be 12, are, are they that person? No. They've changed, you know, because they're developing. They're, they're, they're moving forward. Um, my, my family was that way with us. You know, we were, we were taught who we were. We were taught what we valued. Uh, yes, I was raised uh, going uh, to a church, but like I said, then there came a point in my life where it had to be my decision, and I had to say, this is who I am, and this is what I will f- uh, follow. And that, that is a part of it also that, that you have to recognize um, so have you, ever, have you ever heard this phrase from your mom? Uh, I will use my last name. She, Bradleys don't what? They don't do that. <laughs> you ever heard that? Or Bradleys do this. Yes, of course. Because she was instilling into us a sense of who we are, where we came from, the identity that she wanted us to hold on to, Building that into us. I, I, I tell people, I, I never remember ever having my parents threaten us or try to bribe us for good grades. But I do always remember that it was expected that we had a good life, we were taken care of, the opportunity was there, we had a good mind, we were smart enough, we should be able to do the work and, and perform well enough. And it was just an expectation that was always there, as well as a moral expectation in my family, absolutely. Um, my, my dad, we, I, I've told you before, my dad was a, a doctor, so grew up in a little small town. <clears throat> and in this town, my dad did not, he carried a wallet, but he carried no money almost. I mean, sometimes he'd have a dollar or two. 
He carried no credit cards until the latter part of his life because he didn't want to charge things. And so, uh, but he did charge things because everywhere my, doctor, my dad went, uh, people knew him. So any place he went into, he would buy things and he would say, just send the bill to my, and they'd send it to his office. Well, I could go in and do the same thing, just to let you know. Because my dad would send me, my older brother and my sister sometimes say, go pick this up and just have them charge it to me. And so they'd send it to his office. And so I learned, ooh, this could be a good deal, right? You know, because there's some great toy stores and uh, some athletic stores. And, you know, I can just go in and order and just send the bill to my dad. You know, I never did that because I knew the penalty. You know, I knew, I knew what it would cost me if I did, that that was not the expectation. This was not like you can just do whatever you want to do. There was a certain amount of responsibility to it. And I knew that, you know, once the bill arrived a week later, I would have to answer for it. So, uh, you know, but, but that's, that's how I was raised. Here's what, um, if you go to anthropologists and those who study history, here's what they say about cultures. Cultures do the same thing. Cultures have expectations. Communities have expectations of who you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to act, what the morality um, is. And, and some of that shifts and changes, which makes it difficult. Uh, they say this. They say in the past, if you were to break from those expectations, you would be considered a rebel or you might be considered you know, someone who intentionally is trying to cause trouble. And, and, and they say, this is now, they say the strangest thing has happened in our culture. Now, if you go against expectations, there's at least part of the culture will say you're a hero and they will lift you up in some way as a hero. And they said that is a very strange thing with the development of communities because it actually goes against the way a community uh, is developed because the expectations are there for a reason, for, for a purpose that we understand I behave like this and I do this for the sake, not just my sake, but for the sake of the community. In fact, one of the things that's kind of unusual about our culture is we have shifted um, from this idea because of our idea of freedom and all to this idea that, that I want to be free to do whatever I feel and my feelings become the highest and greatest good. There's a problem with that. Your feelings change. Feelings never stay the same. And if you just acted upon what you felt and said, that's who I am, then you'd be in a dilemma five years later or 10 years later or 15 years later because your feelings would change. Does your identity change? Well, if, if you're building it on that, yes, your identity constantly changes and you're never sure of who you are. There needs to be, for human beings, there needs to be this sense of who we are. So that as the culture changes, the world changes, we live in a world that's not always easy to deal with, we still understand where we came from, who we are, and what the values that we hold to, what those values are. That's what um, Jesus gave to his followers. That's what he built into them, where he taught them about who they were, where they came from, that they were created by God himself. Tony Evans, I was, I was told this last week, so I went and listened to Tony Evans' sermon last week. Someone told me that uh, he preached the same sermon that you did. I said, well, we talk all the time, and uh, we do not. So, um, um, 
I went back and listened to it, and he did talk about freedom last week. And he did say this. This was really interesting. So in the, in the early part of Genesis, here's what you find the word freedom mentioned for the very first time when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. And he says to Adam and Eve, he said, from the trees of the garden, you may eat. What do you think the word was? You may eat freely. Yeah. Eat freely. Were there restrictions in the garden? Absolutely there were restrictions in the garden. Not, not many, just one tree. Just don't eat of this tree. But, but there was an incredible freedom that he gave us so that we would choose and so that we would learn how to choose and, and what to choose uh, well uh, with our lives. I, I think that uh, that's, that's a part of who we are and uh, a good part of who we are. I, I, I said I like to listen to history and read history. So I went back and I was reading about a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. I don't know if you know who that is. Uh, he's born in uh, 1844, I think, and uh, lived till about the 1900s. Uh, he's actually one of those whose his influence is considered still very heavy on Western society. But he's German. Um, he had a lot of influence over uh, Sigmund Freud and over the uh, actually over the Nazi Party in in their understanding of life. And here's what Nietzsche said. I put this quote in here because I thought that you would be interested in this quote. So Nietzsche is not a Christian. Nietzsche actually is against Christianity and all religion and pretty much almost all uh, sources of authority in his day. Here's what Nietzsche said. He said, when one gives up the Christian faith, think about what he's saying. When one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet, right? Because the morality that you hold to has a foundation, a place that it comes from. And if you lose the foundation, he says, you don't have a right to that morality. You, you can't make it up yourself. And, and this is what um, our culture has tended to do is take a morality that came from the Christian faith, pull Christianity out from under it and say, but we're going to hold to those same values. And then now we find ourselves shifting in those values and losing those values. And Nietzsche is exactly right. Why? Because we pulled out the foundation of those values. And you won't be able to hold to them if you don't have that foundation. You lose where they came from. In one sense, you lose the identity of those values, you know. So they don't really fit anymore. Just to let you know, uh, Nietzsche, uh, uh, his uh, influence and his ideas were uh, that there should be no religion and there should be um, no uh, oversight of any kind of Christianity or anything like that. I think uh, John Lennon wrote a song like that too, right? Imagine there's no heaven. Okay, so you know, so yeah, he had influence. He did influence us. But this is what he also writes. He, he says that we should have no rights. People should have no rights. All rights should be taken away also, and then we would have the perfect society. That's kind of Lennon's song also. You think that would work? <laughs> I don't think so either. Because it, it's not the absence of those things. It's actually the presence of those things and who gave us those things that actually keeps us solid and functioning and, and moving uh, together. Nietzsche had this, this view of, his view was you have the animal kingdom, then you have humanity as we are right now, and we are sort of the bridge to what he called 
and an an overman. Now that I, we would I would call it maybe a superman, and he was he viewed us as a transition to the superman who had had no rules, had no n- nothing overseeing him, but also had no rights to anything, and that would make the perfect utopian society. And several hundred years ago, I mean, they became obsessed with how could we build the perfect. Uh, utopian society, and then we had the great world, world wars, right, where everybody say, okay, this is a good, good, good place to take over. And uh, yeah, that's where we, we lose a lot of those rights and a lot of those things that we want to hold to. Here's what Jesus said. In fact, I think that if you look, go a couple more chapters from chapter 8, you go to chapter 10, Jesus is actually talking to them, um, his disciples, in a way that you're going to see a lot about identity in his talk and what he what he actually uh, told them. Here's what Jesus said in chapter number 10. He says, I tell you the truth, uh, anyone who sneaks over the wall of the sheepfold, that would be the sheep pen where the sheep are, he says, rather than going through the gate, must surely be a thief and a robber. So Jesus is saying, listen, there's a way it has to work. There, there, there's a process or an opening that makes someone legitimate and if they don't come in the legitimate way, then you don't want to follow what they say or you don't want to listen to that voice because it would cost you. He says, but the one who enters through the gate um, uh, must, uh, is the good shepherd of the sheep or the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. And the sheep, he says, recognize his voice and they come to him. He calls his own sheep, catch this, by name and he leads them out of the, the, the gate, the area where they're enclosed to go into pastures. He says, after he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger, he says. They will run from him because they do not know his voice. So Jesus is saying there's legitimate authority, there's legitimate idea of, of who will lead you and there's illegitimate. Sheep are a strange thing, aren't they? In fact, for the most part, you know, in their day, it would be like us. They were insulted to hear that they were being called sheep. They were. Because sheep are not very smart animals. I've never been around them for very long. I've just seen them. But I've heard a lot of people talk about them, and they're just not smart animals. I guess that's why they have a really thick woolly coat, right, to protect them. Because they get into trouble all the time. They get, they get, they get stuck with that coat in the thicket all the time. One, one guy who kept sheep. I read, he said, if you put good food and bad food in front of them, it's just, you know, roll the dice to which one they're going to eat. You're thinking, why would you eat the bad food? But it's just, he says, who they are. They need to be led. They need to be cared for. They need to be taken care of. Is, is that offensive to you if someone were to call you a sheep or a flock? Yes, of course, because we think, wait a minute. I can make decisions for myself. I can take care of myself. But Jesus is actually using this illustration because they knew the illustration. They had sheep. They had shepherds who cared for the welfare of the sheep. And so he's using it because he's saying, you need to understand and you need to think about who has my best interest in mind? Who is the one that I can trust with my life? And Jesus is using himself as an example of the shepherd that cares for his sheep. When I was a a young pastor... There was a guy that I worked with who, um, well, he, he pretty much wanted uh, my job. He wanted to take me out of my job, and he wanted to take my job. So we, we had some struggles. And so he went to the church, and he told people in the church 
that I consider them dumb sheep. Because we had been talking about leadership and we were reading some of these passages, and I consider them dumb sheep. Well, is that offensive? Yeah, that would, that would be offensive. That wasn't what we were talking about. What we're talking about is leadership. Who are you going to trust to lead you? Where are you going to find what you need to be led well? And what Jesus says might sound offensive, but it's not offensive at all. It's that Jesus knows more than we know. In fact, when Jesus addresses our identity, you know what he does with God? He says, you know, he is God, but here's what you should refer to God as. You should refer to God as what? Father, right? Here, teaching them to pray. Here's how you pray. Our Father who is in heaven. It's a different relationship because a father, you know, you, you get who you are from your mother and your, and your father, your parents. You know, your DNA comes from them. Your, your abilities come from them. Your, your sense of morality, right or wrong, yes, it comes from them. Your training and your teaching comes from them because they have taken on the responsibility of, of caring for you and for raising you. And that's how he taught us to listen to God and to look to God. It, it's actually true in the Old Testament also because uh, David, if you remember the 23rd Psalm, uh, David says... Um, about, about God, he said that he is the great shepherd. I, I put my hope and my trust in, in him. And then he adds, and because of that, I shall not want. He means for direction, to know where to go and to do the things that, that he should do because that's how God should be viewed. He is the one that, that you and I can trust to lead us and to guide us. Then he adds this, or, or this is uh, what it says about the story in the next verse. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration, they did not understand what he meant. Yeah, because it was offensive to them also, so they're struggling with it. So he explained it to them. He said, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. So the first identifier for Jesus is, he's actually the, 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 the opening to go through. If, if you don't go through Jesus, it's because, you know, it's not someone who cares uh, for the sheep. He says, all who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely, and they will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a, say this with me, a what? A rich and a satisfying life. Yeah, that, that's, that's what Jesus intends to do with us, is to lead us to the life that, that is good for us, that there's a satisfaction to this life. We understand who we are. We, we know the opportunities that we've been given. And, and as we, we follow him and we trust him, we'll end up in a place that we're, we're glad that we have followed him. Then he, then he adds this. He sort of gives another idea of this same illustration. He says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. So, and, and he's gonna, he's gonna clarify the difference in a good shepherd and a shepherd that is only hired, you know, and only gets, uh, does a job because he gets paid for it. He says, a good shepherd, catch this, sacrifices his life for his sheep. Wow. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty powerful image of the, for them because they knew the story of David. And if you know the story of David, when David was a young boy, youngest of his family, David was a shepherd. He was, his job was to go out and to keep the sheep. And uh, in the midst of danger, when danger came, David actually talks about he didn't run from the danger. He actually stood and he defended the sheep 
from the danger. Why? Because the sheep belonged to him. They actually belonged to his father. He cared for them. It was, it was personal for him. So when the wolf came or the bear came, whatever, David would stand against the, the, the enemy of the sheep. This is who Jesus is for us also. In verse number 12, he says, a hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him. And he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and he doesn't really care about the sheep. But Jesus says in verse 14, but I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep. They know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold, this, this sheep pen. He says, I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. This is Jesus referring to the Gentiles who would later also be brought in from a different sheepfold, but they would become a part of the flock, one shepherd, one, uh, one group of sheep also as they are brought in. Then he says in verse 17, the father loves me because I sacrifice my life so I may take it back again. Catch this. No one can take my life from me. From me. I sacrifice it what? Voluntarily. That means Jesus does this freely. He, he gives up himself. He sacrifices himself freely. That's what freedom is. Why? Because it's a good thing to do. It's worth it. He loves the sheep, so he's going to give his life for the sheep because that's how much he he cares for the sheep. When um, my dad, um, uh, at one point, he, he needed a tax write-off. So you know how that game is played. And so the accountants tell him, you know, you need to uh, buy some land. Um, you need to put, uh, at first we thought he was going to put horses on it. Everybody happy about that? Oh, man. I rode horses. I loved riding. We're going to have our own horses. You know, a pretty big uh, piece of land. I had a pond on it. Boy, this is going to be great. Until my dad found out horses are a lot of work. And uh, he was like, no, because y'all aren't going to do it. You know, as a kid, you won't keep up with all the work. I'll have to do the work. And so he was like, I'm not, we're not doing that. We're going to get cows instead. That's what they counted, told him. Cows are a lot easier. Get cows. So my dad came to us and says, y'all can ride cows. <laughs> well, I, I've, I've seen that in a rodeo. You don't want to ride a cow. You know, it's a very dangerous thing to do. They're, they don't really like being ridden. And then what I found out was this is before uh, Angus beef became a big thing. My dad bought black Angus because uh, they went to some people who dealt with cattle and they said, if you're going to do cows, you want to do a lot of work, you want to go with black Angus. They're not as big, not as much beef, but they're the easiest cows to take care of them. They're really low in uh, diseases and struggles. They calve without any assistance. And he says, you don't want to get into that if you can help it. And so we, we, we bought black Angus uh, cattle. And uh, now they're, my dad probably wishes he was still here and still had them because they're very expensive now and they're considered a better beef. But you know one of the problems with um, buying cattle and the, and the kids, us taking care of the cattle? Guess what we did? We named every cow, right? <laughs> we knew them all by name. And every time there was a calf born, we named every calf because they were like, pets to us. I mean, that's how much we cared for them. It wasn't just something 
that we would, you know, go out there and do a job. You know, it was, it became personal. Yeah, that's the way it is with God. God knows every person. He names every person. They, they belong to him. He cares for them. So when, when, when there's danger or there's a threat to them, guess who will stand up and offer their life in sacrificing for his kids? Yeah, the father will. He will stand up and do that. And so Jesus describes himself as that kind of shepherd who names and he cares for and he offers himself um, for um, those that he loves. He says, for I have authority to lay it down um, when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my father has commanded. This is the place that the father has called Jesus to uh, act and to stand. It says, when he said these things, the people were again, I like this, the people were again divided. You know what that meant? Some believed him, some liked it, some said, nope, don't like what he's talking about, don't like the idea, have my own ideas, I'm going to work by a different idea. Like that, that's just the reality of life. So they're divided in their opinions about him. Some said, he is demon-possessed and out of his mind. You know, when, whenever you don't agree with someone, and this is especially true in the political season, right? You don't just say, hey, you know, I, I don't agree with that person's political stance or with their views. No, what do you say? He's a demon, right? Yeah, he's, he's out of his mind. He's, he's on some kind of drugs, you know. Right, because that, that tends to justify, in your mind, your view. They did the same thing. He's demon possessed. You know, we don't know who he is. We don't understand what in the world's going on with him. I mean, you know, you don't want to follow him because it's a way of saying if you were to follow after him and believing, you know, you've lost your mind also. And so they tried to la label Jesus in exactly the same way. And this is what it says. It says, why listen to a man like that? But others said, this doesn't sound like a man possessed like a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the who? Now, the reason this is important is because the chapter before, if you want to go back and read chapter 9 in, in John, chapter 9 in John, Jesus encounters this man who's been blind his whole life. From birth, he's, been, he's never been able to see. And Jesus actually is the famous story where he goes and he spits in the dust, and you think, ooh, you know, but he makes mud out of it. He, he, he coats the man's eyes in the mud. He tells him, go to the pool in Shalom and wash, wash the mud off. And the man did, and he comes back, and guess what? Is he blind anymore? No, he can see. And, of course, it creates a great stir among the people because here's a man who can give sight to the blind. Never been able to see, he, he gives the man sight. It also creates a great stir with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those who view they are in control of the society because he's changing everything. He, he's changing how they see things. He's changing who they, hey, who they listen to. And so what do they do? Well, they, you know, he's demon-possessed. He's a bad man. In fact, they bring the man um, to themselves, the religious leaders, and uh, some say, you know, he just looks like the man. That's not the same guy. You know, the, the guy that was blind is a different guy. But they bring him, and the guy actually says, no, that, that was me. Yeah. And they said, you know, who is he? How did this happen? He says, I, you know, I don't know. They bring his parents. And they say, you know, your son, because they can put a lot more pressure on the parents. And it says that, that the parents felt that pressure, don't want to be cast out by their culture, by their, you know, by their group. 
And, and they, you know, in, in, in order to kind of deflect, they say, well, you know, he's of age. Ask him what happened, you know. Don't, don't ask us. Okay, that's a pretty good move because they go back to him again. And they say, so what happened? He said, okay, listen, here's what happened. I was blind. Now what? Yeah, okay. <laughs> pretty simple, right? I couldn't see. I was blind. Now I see. And they're like, but how could that happen? And I, I like it because he actually says, so are you guys kind of trying to examine it and figure it out because you want to be his followers too? Well, they blow up over that, you know, <laughs> be his followers. You know, what, what are you talking about? You know, and, um, and they, you know, they want to cast him out also because he goes against um, what they believed, how they wanted life to be. Maybe you could say how they felt life should be. It, it's, it's a different authority, but, but the good thing about this authority is this is someone who proves by his life that, that he can do what he says, that the, the claims that he make, he backs, he backs those claims up. The promises that he can give, yeah, he, he can back up those promises. It's a, it's a whole different understanding of life. And if you're going to build your identity on someone and on something, wouldn't you want to build it on the one who could do these things rather than the one who would fight against these things? Yes, of course. And they saw this shift going on. And the people drawn, not because Jesus gave them what they wanted or he was throwing gifts at them. It was just because of his ability to do things that, that they couldn't do. And it reflected who Jesus was, where he came from, the authority of the father that he called, told them, it's your father, I came to do these things for that reason. I was, uh, this week I decided uh, just for some reason to read uh, the, the little short called The Ugly Duckling. You remember The Ugly Duckling, the short? Most of us, you know, I don't know that I ever read it before, but you know, you've heard the story or at least, you know, a short version of it, but it was written by uh, Hans Christian Andersen. In fact, uh, he published it the same year that um, Friedrich Nietzsche was born. No, nothing there. Just, it was just a kind of a strange thing that that's when he published it. And if you know the story, uh, it starts out kind of strange. It just starts out in the nest. There's a hen, there's a duck, and she has her eggs. And for some reason, there's another egg, and it's different. It's, it's just kind of a strange egg. One of the other hens comes uh, in the story and says, that's a turkey egg. I've seen this before. I don't know what that means. Maybe turkeys lay eggs in ducks' nests. I, I don't know. But uh, she says, you know, you don't want to have anything to do with it. Just abandon it. Hadn't hatched yet. The others have hatched. I'm just telling you, it's a turkey egg. And uh, when it hatches, the little chick won't swim. It won't do, you know, it's just, it's just a disaster. It won't do anything you want them uh, to do. So she decides to hatch the uh, egg anyway. And sure enough, the uh, chick that comes out looks different. It's bigger. It's uglier. But it ends up that it swims really well. It jumps in with the other ducklings and swims well and goes to the bottom and hunts and does all the things it's supposed to. But eventually they, they batter the little, the little chick, the other ducks peck at it, and they drive the chick off. At one point in this short story, the, the chick finds this house with the, with the door that's dilapidated and the bottom there's a little opening and goes into a house and kind of finds a new home, a new family of an old woman, a cat, it sounds dangerous to me, but a cat that could purr and could arch its back and another uh, hen uh, that was there that would lay eggs. And I uh, thought, okay, well, at least, you know, here I've kind of found a home, except 
The pressure was on, can you arch your back and purr from the cat? No. Can you lay eggs? No, it was a, it was a male and could not lay eggs, so eventually gets kicked out again. Goes into the winter, uh, almost freezes to death, according to the story, and eventually uh, ends up at a place where this ugly duckling sees these beautiful swans, you know, just these gorgeous, huge, graceful, just, the, you know, sort of the ultimate of birds in the water, and uh, sees them, you know, yearns, why couldn't have I have been something like that? And at some point, the little ugly duckling decides life's not worth living. And so I will go and I will approach the swans, as beautiful and as powerful as they are, and they will kill me. That's, that's the story, actually, that I will go do this. And so as the ugly duckling goes into the water and swims out to the swans and lowers its head um, before them, to be killed, he sees his reflection in the water. And of course, the ugly duckling is not a duckling. He's a what? He's a swan, yeah. And he's taken back by it. And so this, this place where these swans are is often visited by a family and some kids. And this is how the story ends, the short story ends. It says, uh, into the garden presently came some little children and they threw bread and cake into the water. See, cried the youngest, there's a new one. And the rest were delighted and ran to their father and mother, dancing and clapping their hands and shouting joyously, there's another swan come. A new one has arrived. Then they threw more bread and cake into the water and said, the new one is the most beautiful of all. He is so young and pretty. I don't know about the pretty part for young boys, but anyway, that, you know, so young and pretty. And the old swans, listen to this, they bowed their heads before him. Then I love this last paragraph of his story. He says, then he felt quite ashamed and he hid his head under his wing for he did not know what to do. He was so happy and yet not at all proud. He had been persecuted and despised for his ugliness and now he heard them say he was the most beautiful of all birds. Even the elder tree bent down its bow into the waters before him, and the sun shone warm and bright. Then he rustled his feathers, he curved his slender neck, and he cried joyfully from the depths of his heart. I never dreamed of such happiness as this when I was an what? Ugly duckling. Yeah. It, it's a wonderful story. Danish author. Christian background, the idea that God rescues and he redeems. And so many times as we go through our life, you know, we look at our life uh, based on the culture around us and how the culture reacts to us, and we just feel out of place. We don't, we don't think we belong. We feel like we're, you know, ugly or unwanted. And then all of a sudden, what you find is God had a different intention for your life, which is why Jesus Christ came, to show us who we really were supposed to be where we should learn about who we are from. And everything changes. And, and it's not a kind of change that puffs you up, makes you proud or arrogant. It's the opposite. It humbles you. It brings tears inside, but they're actually tears of great joy and happiness because now you've found who you really are, who you're really created to be. Let's pray together.
And this morning as we're praying, if, if you're here and maybe you've never thought about who God made you to be, God's plans for you, and he, he had plans for you. Maybe because you, you've grown up in a world where maybe you felt like the ugly duckling, or maybe you felt like you couldn't find your place to belong, or maybe you weren't raised with the same love that, that you felt like you should have been raised with and care. Jesus showed us there is a Father who loves us and cares for us. And he proves it by sending his Son to rescue us. E even the man who was born blind, he found something that he had never found around him before. That there was a God who cared for him, who loved him, who had plans for him. They weren't bad plans, they were good plans. But there are good plans that actually help humble us, make us realize just how loved and cared for we really are, that there's a place for us, a place for our lives, as we find that we belong to him and we are here, his. We find out what our true identity is. You've never opened your heart to seeing yourself through the eyes of God's Son, the one who would lay down his life for you. I encourage you this morning. He, he is alive. He is real. He is still moving and changing the lives of people. Not everyone will choose this. But what an opportunity for you to say, Lord Jesus, thank you for giving your life for me. Thank you for coming, being like me, to show me what life is really all about. Suffering and struggling through life, the same struggles that I go through. But through them all, I thank you that you knew who you were, you held to who you were, and to what the Father had called you to do so that I could be set free. Lord Jesus, come live inside of me. Forgive me my sins. Lead me into the life that you have for me, that you planned for me. In Jesus' name I pray.